0: Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com/vp. connectinvest.com/vp. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where Rent Ready steps in. Now, Rent Ready's got an important new feature proof of income verification. And get this with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with Rent Ready. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of rent ready for $1, which is crazy.
1: This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast
2: Show, number 275. You don't always have to know everything before you actually get the deal. And, and there, there is actually time to research it. And sometimes if it doesn't pan out you find something you don't like and the seller won't work with you, or if you want to cancel the deal, then you cancel it. You know, there's no, you don't have to bat hundred percent on your offers either. So if, like I said, if it was a one in 10, I got an accepted contract. There are probably 20% of those deals that I also canceled too. So it is a numbers game And each deal that you cancel. It's, you're going to have learned something.
3: You're listening to bigger pockets
1: radio simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place.
3: Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from biggerpockets.com, your home for real estate investing online.
1: What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon, today's host of the Bigger Pockets podcast here with my wonderful, awesome co-host, Mr. David Green. How you doing, David? I'm doing great, man. How is Hawaii treating you? Hawaii is treating me treating me well. I got one more month here, and then everyone will will be able to stop listening to me talk about how awesome Hawaii is. So we're heading so back in May. You're buying a house, right? You're trying to, to buy something and move out there permanently. Well, I I'm I'm exploring the idea uh or at least having a property like a second plot property I can rent out when I'm not there and I can go back and forth. That would kind of be ideal. So I put an offer on a house last week, actually, or was it two weeks ago now? And you know, it's uh we're in negotiations. I actually don't think it's going to go through, but as we talk about on today's show, that's fine. This is a numbers game. I don't, i like, I'm not emotionally attached to it. I was a little emotionally attached, but I'm not that emotionally attached. Like it's a, if they end up accepting my offer, it's going to be a great deal as an investment property, even in Hawaii, which people say it's impossible to find. It's not. Uh, but if they don't take it, I'm going to keep looking. That's how the master buys real estate. <laughs> that's the the master real estate strategy. No, it really is. Like, and we talk about that in today's show. That like our guest talks about how ninety percent of his offers get rejected. You know, and, and that's kind of about my number too. I typically lose about ninety percent of my offers. And he talks about why that doesn't matter. But before we get to today's show, I don't want to talk too much about it. I want to get to today's quick Dick tip. tip. Now today's quick tip is that I want to tell you guys a little bit about BiggerPockets landlord forms. If you are a real estate investor who owns rental properties, or you plan to, you need to pick up some of our landlord forms. We have currently 34 different states uh, that we have landlord law, like you know, specifically a state was what's the word? State approved landlord, yeah, state specific landlord uh, forms that have been looked at and prepared by. Uh, other like attorneys in those states, which is super cool. Uh there's eight different documents, including a twelve page lease and application, addendums, et cetera. Uh, and it's like way more comprehensive and way more legal than you're gonna find like some free form online. So like as you'll hear today on today's show, Having a good lease is so important. In fact, our guest today tells a story about how, you know, you can lose like 15 grand if you would just have the wrong lease. So don't have the wrong lease. It's like not that expensive to buy the leases on BiggerPockets. I think right now where there's a sale, you can get it for like a hundred bucks. I don't know when that sale ends. So pick it up today, biggerpockets.com slash LL forms. And with that, let's get down with today's show. So DG, today we're talking with a lawyer. That's always fun, right?
3: Talking with lawyers. Yeah, that's one of the things that I wake up every morning and I'm upset if I don't have a lawyer to talk to. I know the day is going to be boring because I don't have any legal the, advice, but there you go. they're kind of like vegetables, right? Like nobody really wants to learn the law or talk to lawyers or eat vegetables, but you need to do it. It's good for you. It's healthy. So you just go through with it. And then when you're done, you're like, I actually feel really, really good. And I'm ready to go take on whatever I have coming up next. So I'm a big fan of, of learning as much as I can. And when it's a topic that's really boring that I don't enjoy learning, I enjoy listening to someone else give me kind of like the quick condensed version that i can learn from there much like these forms on bigger pockets i'm really not going to want to have to go try to figure out how do i drop a, a bulletproof lease i just want to click a button on bigger pockets because someone who likes that boring stuff some vegetable eater has already made it for me <laughs> and i can just go get it from them so th- this show is actually it's very entertaining right this is it's a good show i'm not trying to say it's not it's great but where else can you find a lawyer where you can actually be entertained while listening to them? Yeah. That's what's he's, awesome.
1: Right? Yeah. Cause he's got an awesome story. Like we don't sit there and drill him on like legal stuff all day. Like it's not like, a, but we talked to this guy today, his name's Rob Oliver and he's an attorney that he like, just like, f- like happened to go from like one, like condo to 300 condos, like in a short period of time. And he like, I don't even think he realizes how awesome that is. Like, he's just like, it's just, this is what I did. like, what's the big deal. But you guys are going to love this story. Again, Rob Oliver is amazing. Lots of good advice in there about like being a landlord, about buying rental property, about why condos might need us. You know, like I, I've shied away from them, but after talking to Rob now, I'm like, maybe I should have looked more into them and maybe I should. I know, I'm yeah, thinking right? that too. Yeah, I'm like, this, this is cool. So anyway, he's got a super cool story. But again, today's show is with Rob Oliver, an attorney from the Chicago area who went from like, you know, buying nothing or having nothing to like 300 condos. And he talks about his journey there today. So uh, with that, let's get to the interview. Oliver, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Good to have you here. How are you doing? What's up, guys? How are you? Good, good. This should be a lot of fun today. And I will be honest, I know pretty much nothing about you whatsoever. So we're going to start very early in your journey. Tell us about yourself. How'd you get into real estate?
2: All right, sure. Yeah, I've got an uncle that uh, is a real estate lawyer and owns a title insurance company. So uh, after being a a caddy at the golf course for about seven or eight summers, I graduated high school and my uncle says, hey, listen, why don't you come work at a real job and stop carrying golf bags around? So I showed up to his title company and you know rolled in the door, saw a couple real estate closings go on and quickly got assigned some duties as a clerk, paying water certificates and recording deeds. And kind of uh like an assistant around the title company for a summer and you know it's one of those things it's it's like a full transformation you see the lawyers you see the brokers the buyers the sellers they all walk in and they're all walking out you know smiling or or yelling and, and they've got big checks and wire transfers are coming in so it was uh it was a nice welcome change Okay. Um, so, so I did that for, uh, you know, I worked as, I worked my way up to a closing agent at, at a title company and did that on like summers and holiday breaks from college. And then I also, uh, after college ended up going to law school, I got a degree in college in real estate finance. And then I was pretty interested after seeing all the lawyers come through the title company. So uh, I enrolled in law school and, you know, I had a job as a closing agent and I worked as a real estate broker in law school. And was, uh, was pretty fortunate to, uh, to be able to pay cash for law school, not have any loans. And I kind of nice. had, uh, had, an, you know, my own sort of internship instead of working at a big law firm. So it was a good learning experience and paid pretty well and kind of got me, uh, got me going as a real estate lawyer. it was a nice, nice head start. Okay. Okay. So you went from lawyer
1: to eventually investor, correct? Correct. So walk us through yeah. that transition. Like how did, like how long did that take, and and like why did you decide to make that jump?
2: Yeah, sure. So the practice I started at was, um, again, the same uncle that owned the title company owned a law firm. So small firm, only four lawyers, and I wasn't given a book of business when I walked in. He basically said, "You you eat what you kill. Here, whatever you bill, you can take half of, and the other half goes to the office for you know support staff, malpractice insurance, stuff like that." So. You know i was on my own and I, I i linked up with some real estate brokers i knew and and uh some other real estate clients and you know i started practicing law and for the most part i was interested in, in doing real estate transactions you know i knew i wanted to become a real estate investor at some point in time but you know i didn't have any money i didn't have any experience uh investing in property and i certainly didn't know what the correct pricing of properties were so i you know i went about practicing law it was '07. i got out of law school and at the end of 2008 you know i'd been practicing maybe a year and a half and you know the, the recession hit and transactions came to a screaming halt prices were going down and you know i had i had very little business so i was i was kind of put in a situation where i needed to adjust and become a litigator or i needed to find some other way to make money and I stumbled upon a, a foreclosed condo uh, with whose uh, gentleman who's now my business partner, and by happenstance found a deal that had the perfect fundamentals in terms of rental income, acquisition price, and you know, is sort of like the
3: rest is history. So, Rob, one thing I know is that lawyers make their living. They literally make their living by knowing everything there is to know possibly about what they're doing before they get involved, right? If they're like a trial lawyer, they know all of the law, they know the judge, they know the jury, they know exactly where they're going to go. Real estate investors don't get that luxury. A lot of the time we are learning as we're doing things, right? And sometimes we're only learning through doing things. Can you tell us how on earth you made that shift to get comfortable buying your first deal, what that first deal looked like, how it shifted your mindset, getting into it, what that kind of journey was like on your first deal?
2: Yeah, sure. So you know, it definitely helped because I had a background in title. Uh, you know, working at the title company, I understood how to research properties, how to go through the public records, which I I would recommend to any new investor. If you're, you know, trying to get your feet wet and you want to get in there, just soak up as much information as you can. You know, the public records are, although you can find some things on you know Zillow or Redfin or these you know various websites out there. You know i think they're somewhat inaccurate or or they're, you're not verifying at the actual source so you know what what we did in terms of research is uh reviewed the public records and in the, in the recorder's office so you know on the particular condo unit i'm talking about we you know researched i knew what it sold for before i knew uh, what it sold for before then what year it was what all the other units in the building were selling for and it, it provides a good roadmap in comparison so you know hey here's what i'm getting into I stand to, to make a good deal because my discount is, is this compared to the other units. And it sort of fell into place. But you can't just stumble around and, and say, oh, I'll just make an offer. And, you know, I think I'll get lucky. And I think it's a good price. But if you don't really know anything, you know, you're basically doing the same thing as if you're, you know, walking into the casino and playing a little blackjack. So, um, you know, in this particular unit, we ended up buying a condo. I, I paid $30,000 for it uh, it had previously sold about five years earlier. This is '09 when I bought it and it, it sold in, in, uh, 04 or '05 for uh, $140,000. So I, I'm thinking, wow, this is, a, this is an incredible discount. You know, it was, it was, um, you know, 20 cents on the dollar. Okay. Something. Okay. Wow. If it goes lower than 30 grand, I, I'm, you know, the whole world is, is sort of done for, so it doesn't even matter. I'll just go with them. <laughs> so, okay. So, my my partner and I walked in. We made the offer. We got it, and I'm thinking, okay, now what do I do? We we found a contractor. We did. We paid some closing costs. Finished the closing. So, called them all in for 35 grand. Had it rented for 650 dollars. You know, about a week later, and I ran the number. I said, okay, this is a this is a 12 percent cap rate. You know, the cash on cash return. You know, assuming we pay cash for everything, it's 12 percent. Going, okay. So I'm getting a 12 percent yield on my money. I just bought for 20 cents on the dollar these are good fundamentals. I, 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 just don't see what's going wrong. So that was, that was a cool first deal. It was, it was, a, it was definitely small ball. It's not sexy or glamorous, but you know, that's kind of why I attribute it to why it was such a good deal. No one wanted it. It was, it was just a you know crappy little condominium, but where was uh, that? Where do you find it it a $30,000 condo? Uh, Albany park. It's in the you know, a neighborhood of, of Chicago on the Northwest okay. side, working, working class neighborhood, you know, just to, at the time it was not a favorable asset class. So it didn't trade for, you know, for a high number, but you know, all, all the sharks and the sort of institutional money at that time were chasing after, you know, distressed apartment buildings that were selling at call it 80 or a hundred grand a door and also had like inferior finishes than what was a, a, you know, an older or a converted condominium. So,
3: okay. So if I hear you right, Rob, you you took the knowledge that you had from working at a title company, which was kind of a unique set of knowledge that many people might not understand would help you with investing. But that's what you had. You dug in and you did a, a research of the history of this property, and you found that at the peak it had been selling for one hundred and sixty thousand, and then it was listed at forty thousand. You offered thirty. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, one forty I think was the uh, one forty for sale price. But, so you felt. Yeah. Know-
3: you felt confident to jump in because you knew the history of this thing is crazy it was so much high this you know 30 40 grand is is a deal and you knew it was a deal because you knew the history of the property
2: correct yeah okay. if you just walked up and looked at a listing and said hey this condo's listed for 40 grand you're just thinking okay it's, it's junk what am i doing here but you, you know you don't have the vantage point of knowing hey here's what here's what it pre- previously sold for Oh, by the way, there's 30 other units in the building. Here's what they all previously sold for. Something's wrong here, you know. Yeah, that's whether, really good. whether it's broker mismarketing or, or you know, a lot of different variables as to to why you can find the price. But, you know, just in general, it's, it seems like you, you got to have some skill to bring to to the investment table. I, you know, mine happens to be in, you know, title insurance and law, but. You know, whether you're a broker or a lender, just, you know, some, you have to have, I think you have to have some kind of angle to approach the deals from. So you have, you know, you're not just an outsider, like, you know, it's the equivalent of looking at a stock and saying, oh, I, I like the way the Microsoft logo looks, or I like the way Google looks. Now you don't know anything. You're just throwing darts at the board, right?
3: Yeah. So, uh, that's great. And I love that you, you said you have to have a skill. That's totally true. And not everyone needs the same skills. Some people can analyze a deal. Some people are great with, with finding other people and building relationships and they can find someone that finds a deal. Some people are contractors and know how to estimate rehab costs. You know, there's all kinds of skills that you can have. You use the ones you had to get you to move forward. And then you said something else that was really interesting. I want to dig in on. You mentioned that, Nobody else was looking for those deals. Institutional investors were looking for something much bigger. You were kind of flying under the radar going for these condos and the rent you were getting was putting you at like the 2% rule, right?
2: Yeah, it was, you know, again, it was totally, you know, it was was a random occurrence, but, you know, we fell into it, saw some of the fundamentals and I said, Hey, this is, this is a good model. No one wants these, you know, like everyone's going right. So I just said, okay, we'll look left and see what we can do here. And, you know, it's not a sexy Business model—it's not glamorous, but you know, it was uh, very programmatic, and I was able to replicate it over and over and over. And you know, at the end of the recession, you know, with that same strategy, you know, I amassed about 300 condo units, buying them for the most part one at a time. You know, we did Whoa. some small packages, but a lot of tra- lot of small dollar transactions.
1: Did you just say 300 condos?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Holy it's, it's, cow! It's, and they're probably spread out through call it 250 different condo buildings. Wow. So, All right. So we, I want to dig on,
1: on condos. Cause like, this is something that I've generally been avoiding in my investing as condos because condos freak me out a little bit because of HOAs. And I'm like, well, what if they raise the HOA fees or what if they suddenly do this? But you're finding a lot of success with condos. Right. right. So, I mean, can you just talk, like alleviate my fears here? Like, am I, un, am I justified in being afraid of condos? Am I just not focused on that? So I shouldn't get into it. Like, what do you, what do you have to say about condos?
2: Yeah, again, ever the investment world doesn't like them. That's and and I think it creates opportunity because there's there's a there's gaps in that, which make it inefficient. Like the, like you just said, you, you think of the average person that says, "Okay, I'm going to buy two hundred thousand dollars condominium," I've saved up twenty percent to put down. Now I've got a hundred and sixty thousand dollars mortgage. The, a working class person or someone living in that unit is also going to be is going to be you know bear to bur- a big burden to pay a large special assessment. So I think if there's a whole building full of people that has to deal with this, I can deal with it too. It's not, it's not going to be totally detrimental. It may be a little bit of a cash flow hit, but a lot of times special assessments are financed over periods of time or else I can attend a board meeting and, and, you know, provide a contractor or or provide some input as to what's going on. Um, on the flip side, what you don't realize for, for a new investor, uh, the condo association manages the entire, everything outside the primer of the, of the unit. So, you know, from the from the walls out, I don't have to deal with roofs. I don't have to deal with shoveling. I don't have to deal with common areas, mowing lawns, any of that stuff. All I have to do is maintenance on the inside of the unit. So I pay a monthly assessment, which covers the insurance, covers the water, covers some utilities, and then and then overall management. So you know, my calls from my tenants are, hey, I've got plumbing issues, so I send a plumber. Turnover, I've got to send a painter. Otherwise, it's just general maintenance, or, or, or you send a pest guy to clean up bugs or whatever. So it really eliminates the uh, the size and the frequency of, of maintenance calls. And it's, it just allows it to be very programmatic. Uh, okay. Also, at the time so- of turnover, like on a single-family house, you know, you could have a roof go out. You could have to paint the whole house. You could have... Uh, structural issues. I I don't have to get involved with any of that. I may have to pay if there's a special, but for the most part, you can, you can underwrite these buildings and see if they've got uh, reserves or, uh, you know, a good board that's running it. Okay. Rob,
3: we, you said you you went from buying that first condo, realized you had found something and then somehow went from 30 Uh, one condo for 30,000 to 300 units, right? So that's amazing. There's a whole lot that you learned in (laughs) that process. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's that's incredible, right? Can you share with us a little bit about what that process would like? How did you fund these deals? How did you do this while working a full-time job? Did you put a team together? Like, Give us some of an idea of how you structured this whole plan and and what your thought process was where you said, I got a good thing. Let me multiply it times a hundred.
2: Yeah, sure. So, like I said, the fundamentals were great in the first deal. We're at a 12 percent, you know, cap rate, and I was buying at 20 cents on the dollar. So he said, "Okay, we need to do some more of this." So uh, my business partner, I've got one business partner, and I we both have full-time jobs. He was working as a real estate broker and and uh, an acquisitions guy for for a local larger-scale investor who happened to be going bankrupt at that time. So he was looking for a little bit of a transition as well sort of replicated that first unit, not exact numbers, but very close. We did that about 30 times with friends and family money, which I w- we would call up our, you know, we got some people to take a leap of faith with us. We said, hey, we'll give you, you know, I w- I'll give you a first position mortgage on our on our condominium that we're purchasing. I want 100% loan to value, which was sort of wild. We We did have a lot of trust from some friends and family, but I was paying 10% interest. I'd give them a first mortgage. And then once we get to the point where we had called five to 10 units aggregated, we'd find some local community banks that were willing to refinance based on appraised value. So we we buy, rehab, rent them, and then we bring them a, a stabilized package saying, hey, we, we've got this much income. We'd like a first mortgage to cover all these. And then we would use the mortgage proceeds to repay our investors. And then sort of recycle the procedure, recycle the money and, and and do that over and over. When we got to about 30 units, we realized we we need to step it in gear. We need we need to move quicker. You know, we couldn't recycle and refi fast enough and, and we weren't able to offer fast enough. So, you know, we, we were coming in the office on Sundays at noon and leaving at two in the morning, and you know, we didn't even we weren't even really we were just analyzing deals on paper. Title, uh, research and public records we could determine how healthy the building was. And, and we'd look at pictures of the listing to see generally what it looked like. We'd look at the location on the map and, and we know pretty much what we needed. So we, on those Sundays we'd put in, you know, a hundred, 200 offers some days strictly off MLS or, or, or through public listings that we saw. And, you know, we were probably striking, striking out 90% of the time, but you know, we were offering what we saw fit. We had a lot of angry uh, responses from brokers, but. You know, batting 10% was fine because we knew we were, we were alleviating a lot of the risk and the deals we were buying were good fundamentals. But, you know, you know I, we, uh, to jump in real quick,
1: I, I think you said something super, super valuable here is that like you were striking out 90% of the time. A lot of people get into real estate and they're like, they make an offer and they they don't get it accepted. And they're like all d- disheartened and they're like, oh man, you know, I tried and they didn't take my offer or whatever. But like, most investors I know typically will strike out 90% of the time, right? Like they lose over and over and over and over and over yet. Like I, I just think that's like a a good testament to your, like, I don't know what you call it. Grit. Maybe the fact that you like, if you're striking out 90% of the time, that also means you're achieving success or at least like getting closer 10% of the time. Right. So it's just a big numbers game. So uh, can you talk about that? Like, what's that like for people who are listening to the show right now, who maybe made one offer and got rejected, can you talk to them at all? Or like anything that helps you kind of get through the hard times of getting rejected?
2: Yeah. So it's, you know, it's patience. A lot of these deals, you know, you got to fight for them and you, you can't, you got to just offer where you're comfortable with. If, if you're putting in a number because your, your incentive is to beat your competition, then, you know, you may end up in trouble. I, I think generally speaking, you put in the offer you're comfortable with, you find, you find exactly what you know and what you can do and then make the offer. It's, it's a lot better to get one in 10 deals than to get five in 10 and then have four out of those 10 be deals. You're going to spend, you know, months or years and tens of thousands of dollars getting out of If You know, yeah. I I'm generally the opinion that if you have, one loser deal. It's going to take at least three, three or four good deals to work your way out of that. And also, your morale is going to be going to be low because you you you're just you know you're questioning your own ability. So I love that. I, I, guess I love that. Quick example on like, um, you know just staying patient and hanging in there. I bought uh, my partner and I bought a six flat in Chicago just this year. It's not totally different strategy than our our condo portfolio, which you know is not our buying opportunity on those condos have pretty much been closed. You know, there's a stress markets done after the recession. So we're, you know, I'm just looking for new strategies and, and new asset classes to buy. But, you know, back to staying patient, why, there was a deal that was listed on the MLS uh, had an asking price, 595,000. My partner and I looked at it, it's very close to our office, uh, six units, there are two retail units, four residential units and uh, one store was empty one with there's like a local grocery store and then the four apartments up top were in terrible shape but you know nice size and in and and good bones to the building so it's for sale for five hundred ninety-five thousand. and you know we sat there we toured it we looked at it we talked to the broker and we said listen you're overpriced i'm willing to give you three hundred thousand dollars." you can realize that you think about the reaction i got a 300 uh, 300 bid on a 595 ask it's yeah. sort of like beat it you know okay so fast forward six months they've lowered the price they're down to they've had a contract fall apart they lower the price 50 grand he says hey listen you guys you were in the initial group of interested parties come tour it again so we tour again you know 300 grand that's our number so he says no sorry uh, lower the price again they're at 475 ish we say, no, 300, that's it. So three contracts fall out. Then finally, the broker calls back and says, okay, the deal's yours. Do you guys want it? And it said, yes. Okay, great. So 500 some days, the property's on the market by the time we got it. And you know, it ended up working out. It, the, the deal, it needed a new roof. There was a gas tank in the backyard that required a to be dug up as an underground gas storage tank, which is Ugh. typically a nightmare for most people. But we, were, we had a ton of time. So we were able to get a couple of opinions that, hey, we can dig it up and get you all clean letter from the Illinois EPA within the next three to four months. And, you know, we had one store to rent and we've got four apartments to rehab. We're almost done stabilizing it. And I think we're gonna, you know, our, our numbers are penciling out to being about a 13% cap rate. And it was a deal that sold in 2008 for 535,000. And it sold in 2002 for 495,000. And, you know, I think when we're all done, we'll be in at about 450. It'll be worth about seven fifty once we're stabilized and then we'll be able to refinance all our capital out and just you know kind of hold it as a long term investment paid on debt.
4: And kind of
2: you know, practice old man real estate where you, you know, hang on to stuff for life and pay it <laughs> off.
3: So. so so Rob, one thing I wanna call out about what you're doing here is like Brandon Turner talks all the time about the more tools you have in your tool belt the more projects you can take on on a rehab. So if all you have is a hammer, you can you can put in a loose nail but you can't take out a screw and if you don't have a saw you, there's certain things you can't do. You described how you went from 1 to 300 units and you use, you mentioned several strategies that we talk about on Bigger Pockets to help people to to kind of grow and to get into the game. And the first was the burst strategy: the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. You mentioned several times we bought a house at a very discounted rate, or not a house, a property, and then we made it worth more, and then we refinanced and got our money back, and that allowed you to now go reinvest that same capital so that you can grow at a much faster rate than having to save up forty grand for every condo you want to buy. You mentioned syndication, so you were gathering other people together and and getting money from them and going and investing that money. You mentioned private money, which is kind of how you got started friends and family. And then you talked about making several offers and you're just going to keep offering and offering. And I just want to highlight, that's how you go from one to 300 is you master all these tools that real estate investing provides. You combine them and you can scale really fast. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think you were successful raising money from your family for the listeners who want to do the same thing? And they're just, they don't really know where to start. They don't know what they need to say or how, propose this, what language to use? Can you, can you share a little bit about tips you would, you would recommend?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, for starters, you can't really get 10% in any sort of CD or a, a non-stock market, or if the, st- if you get 10% in the stock market, you found a good investment guy anyways. But you know, if you offer your friends and family, any tr- sort of trusted person say, Hey, I'm going to pay you 10% interest. I'm going to give you a, a first position mortgage on the property as collateral. So, hey, listen, not only am I guarantee I'm gonna pay you, I'm gonna pay you 10%, which is a large number. So that means I'm gonna wanna get you paid back as soon as possible. And if I don't pay you back or if I get hit by a bus or something catastrophic happens, you can go foreclose the property and take it back and you'll be able to sell it and recoup all or or very close to all of your money. So I, I think the downside risk is pretty low. There is a leap of faith to get some trust, but, you know, you got to go to a close friend or family member, or if you can't, you don't have, you know, capital available, go find a real estate professional and that, you know, kind of... Mentor them and, and, and gain their trust so you can get a small loan. Um, okay. but that's- but I, I also think that when you've when you've taken the time to perform the diligence and you've got the facts and you can clearly explain to somebody why it's a good deal and you haven't answered any sort of negative feedback that you get, you're gonna exude confidence and and that's kind of what gets you the money. It's just, you know, be prepared. You you have to you have to know all the facts about what you're buying, why you're buying it, and and just, you know, soak in as much of the public data as you can. Yeah, confidence
3: comes from preparation and education. And then that confidence is gonna be how you win the people over when you're when you're giving them an opportunity to invest with you. And that's what I want wanted you to kind of highlight. The more you understand about this whole real estate investing thing, the more likely you are to have someone else that puts their trust and confidence with you and gives you money. And then you can go from one condo to 300, that's crazy. So tell us, okay, you, you scaled big, you did very, very well. I'm sure your portfolio has a ton of equity and capital is really strong. Can you kind of tell us, like, what are you doing now? What's the big picture of of Rob's life? I know you're involved in more than just real estate investing. You wear many hats and that's part of why you're successful is you see this from many angles. Can you share with us the different hats you wear, what you've learned from each one and how they all kind of play into this big scheme of what you put together now?
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I I love being an active real estate investor. Uh, Unfortunately, the market is not totally ripe for it right now. I think it's there's very little supply. I think there's a ton of cash on the streets that are looking for deals and it's not impossible to buy. There are still great deals out there. It's just a little bit more competitive and it takes more time. So at the time being, I'm not pedal to the metal, but I, I am always looking at deals and I'm practicing law. I'm a, I'm a real estate attorney and uh, you know I focus a lot of time on managing and making our existing portfolio more efficient. Some of the ways you do that, or, or by sharpening up your systems, I'm constantly updating them to deal with uh, new laws that are coming out, or uh, experiences that I've had that I think can, um, that can streamline our, our tenant relations. Um, so, so that's you know property management and practicing law are sort of what I'm most focused on at the moment.
1: So, how do you do your property management? What's that look like? I mean, you're not out there. Swinging a hammer, fixing plumbing under a house. But are you are you taking phone calls? Do you have a property manager? What's that look like sure. in your life?
2: Sure, I've got an excellent in-house property manager. Believe it or not, my business partner and I are are both actually involved in property management. But we do have one gentleman who's our full-time property manager. Works in our office every day, and he is sort of the the front lines with you know taking calls from the tenants, doing leases, collecting rents, and dealing with all the rehabs. But for the most part, it's you know it sounds made up that you can have one employee to manage 300 units and and not my partner and I don't have to do it full time but the reality is with technology today it's it's amazing we you know we can docu-sign leases I can collect rent payments via uh, Venmo chase quick pay or ACH Uh, we've got portals set up for placing repair calls or repair emails And then we've got a, you know, a very tight list of vendors for, you know, like I said, for rehabbing the inside of a condo unit, uh, there's only a list of five or six things that can go wrong. So I've got two or three professionals in in each sort of rehab category that I send for, for different tasks. So it becomes a very repetitive business.
3: Okay, Rob, what you're saying sounds too simple. I know that that may be the case, but I'm still scared. I still just feel like having 300 units would create so much liability that I could never grow that big. Can you tell me if there is an answer out there, how I can feel comfortable enough to grow a portfolio that big without worrying about being sued, having my places burned down, having somebody throw a huge party in the condo and trash it? How can I know that this is a good idea?
2: Yeah. So first you better get a monster umbrella policy to back everything up. Okay. No, no, um, no just, just, I mean, enough, it's something that's adequate, your insurance agent can always help with that and it helps you sleep at night. You need to segregate liability with LLCs. So um, I've got, you know, different limited liability companies for, you know, not for each property, but, you know, I group them up and depending on how I finance them or the asset size, you know, it's it's good to separate them. You don't want to have all your eggs in one basket and you want to make sure you've got enough insurance. You know, on condos, the association assessment uh, covers the, ma- the majority of the insurance, which is for the building. But then um, I carry a rental policy for the inside contents and I require the tenants also to get a renter's policy for their own uh, personal property. So that alleviates things like, you know, hey, the unit upstairs flooded into mine, the pipe broke, or I was broken into and you didn't provide enough security, things like that. Um, so, you know, you build insurance, you need to build the cost of your premiums into uh, your underwriting models and just, you know, make sure that's taken care of. But otherwise, it's, you know, there's a lot of common sense. If someone emails you or calls you, you get back to them. I mean, don't don't put it off. and you know, just be responsive and be of service.
3: Okay. Is there anything that you can tell us specifically about the lease that kind of gave you, you know, confidence or a sense of security that, Hey, I'm, I'm increasing my risk by increasing my size, but I'm also making steps to mitigate that risk.
2: Sure. So in Chicago, um, and I I suspect it's the same case. I own almost all my property in Illinois. Um, so I, 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 can't really speak to other States, but, in Chicago, and I suspect it's most of the larger metropolitan areas of, of in the country, um, the laws are, are heavily slanted in favor of the tenant. Um, you know, pretend that you, you, the, the person writing the laws or the, the, the legislators, they, they're under the assumption that each landlord is filthy rich. They own 5,000 apartments and they don't ever fix anything. They don't ever respond to a call. There's cockroaches all over the place. You know, so that's sort of what you're dealing with when you roll into court day one and the judge looks at you. He's got to follow the laws. You may not agree with them, but they are written to favor the little guy. And it's not it's there is a reason for it. There was a reason for it, but it's, it's not always fair. So, you know, if you don't have the correct lease or if you don't have uh, the right disclosures in your lease or if you collect a security deposit, there are many different circumstances where. You're, going, you're coming into court and your tenant's 10 steps ahead of you. Uh, for example, in Chicago, there are a whole handful of tenants' rights uh, attorneys that uh, partially part of the court fee when you pay to file an eviction funds the tenant's attorneys. It's a nice service. It's, a, it's necessary and it's good for social purposes, but... When you're a landlord and you have a non-paying tenant and you haven't done anything wrong, you need to be in a position to protect yourself. In the city of Chicago, the biggest issue is is security deposits. Uh, Believe it or not, I don't have, I I maybe have three or four security deposits on all 300 of my units. Those are tenants who haven't moved out since 2009 or 2010. And I I therefore I haven't had a reason to refund the security deposit or they haven't accepted a refund when I'm offered it back to them. But for the most part, that's the biggest no-no in the city of chicago for any of my clients i recommend not taking a deposit uh, for the simple reason you have to hold it in a segregated account you have to give them interest which could amount to you know 12 cents a year and you have to do it by a certain deadline in, in the list goes on there's probably 20 different things you have to do correctly i'm an attorney and i would need a full-time you know extra property manager or two just to figure out how to deal with secure deposits correctly in each circumstance so and the penalty, if you don't do that, is three times the security deposit plus the attorney fees for the tenant. Uh, it, it totally puts you behind the eight ball when you've got a non-paying tenant. Quick example, my um, one of my clients comes into my office and says, hey, I've, I've got a tenant, they're not paying rent, I need you to do an eviction. So I said, no problem, I gave them a notice, they came back a week later, and said, hey, I gave them the notice, they still haven't paid, why don't you go ahead and file? So basically, I'm walking into court, I know their lease is bad. There's nothing I can do about it. They've already broken all the security deposit violations. I didn't write the lease for them. They, you know, they pulled it off of Google and it, it maybe wasn't even written for the state. So it was, it was a rough lease. So I'm hoping, okay, let's hope this tenant doesn't get a lawyer. Sure enough, lawyer shows up to court day one. I've got counterclaims. You didn't pay interest on your security deposit and you know, we're coming after you. And my, by the way, my tenant's not leaving. Okay. so. Here's fast forward to the end of the case. I'm I'm in court probably five or six times dealing with these tic-tac violations. It takes six months before the sheriff actually goes out and evicts this tenant. So it's a thousand a month was what the rent was. No rent was paid for six months. So so landlords out six months for $6,000. They're into, I'm into them for $1,000 for court costs and fees. So that's $7,000. They had to pay the tenants lawyers fees. That's $8,000, another thousand. And then there's a $100 penalty for the violations that they had. Now they're in you know well almost almost about ten thousand dollars and tenants just out places trash. they've got to do turnover now it's unbelievable because all of this is avoidable had the tenant done a correct lease on day one not taken a security deposit i could have gotten them out of court and probably or out of, out of the unit in probably six to eight weeks or negotiate with their lawyer to get rid of them because they'd have no leverage in court and it's it's one of those things where it's like hey for you know one or two billable hours you could hire a lawyer on the front end you never have to deal with this and you know this is not something that i see sometimes or on occasion invariably eight out of ten clients that come in my office have a terrible lease they've broken all the rules because it's sort of you know everyone's intimidated to go talk to a lawyer on the front end and it, it really you you meet a new person you got a new advisor the lawyer's going to want to do closings for you and do legal work so you know, they're gonna like to meet you as an investor and for call it 500 or $600, you're gonna have a bulletproof lease for whatever city you're in. So it's, in my opinion, a no brainer. You You gotta get a tailored lease for your properties on the front end.
3: Yeah. I think the biggest mistakes I've made in my own career have been because I was trying to save money upfront, like not using a property manager, for instance, when I was not in a position to do it myself. And then that led to a horrible eviction and lost rent and all kinds of problems because I didn't want to pay upfront. I think having a lawyer in your corner is really, really valuable even if for nothing more than just your own sense of confidence that comes from knowing, hey, I got big brother behind me flexing his muscles and he can take care of me when something goes wrong. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you would recommend for an investor to do? How does this whole process look to get a lawyer? Do you just start calling people and say, I need someone on standby? Is there an agreement you fill out? What does that look like?
2: No, I think it's, I think it's just a referral. You know, if, you're, if you've gone as far as to buy a property Um, you know, depending on what state you're in, you may have used a lawyer to buy the property, or you've probably worked with a real estate agent, either the listing broker or the, the, or if there was a broker who found it for you. So, you know, you've met a few people, you've gone that far, you know, ask around for recommendations. The other thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, in the past, what I've done is I, even though I am a lawyer, what what I've done is I've hired other lawyers in my city who specialize in representing tenants and evictions, and i'll I'll pay them three, four or five hundred dollars to draft a lease for me. And it accomplishes two things. One, I see how how they attack it from the tenant's perspective, and if there's other laws or angles that I haven't considered, even though I am a lawyer and understand generally how it works. And then two, the second best part is now I have an attorney client relationship with that tenant lawyer. So if I have a tenant that I'm suing and this you know shark tenant lawyer tries to represent them, they've got a conflict of interest. so they can't they, now they have to back out of the case or the, and the tenant has to find a new lawyer. So that's that's kind of a decent strategy too. So
3: I me mean, as an investor, do I want to call a lawyer and say, "Hey, I'm an investor. I need a lawyer. What can you do for me?" Or do we? Is there specific questions that the listeners can know? Hey, this is what I need to call a lawyer and ask him. How does that process work with your when you're working with a lawyer before you're being sued?
2: Yeah, you want to you want to get the lease done. You know, you want to. Uh, are are you talking about like before before you sign a lease? I think I think that's the best timing. And if you if you don't have direct access to the lawyer, you know. Just don't go on Google and look it up. I mean, there might be, there, there's probably a lot of other trusted sites where you can buy tailored forms and that's the next best thing. I and mean, if you, if you are intimidated or don't want to spend the money or your budget's too tight to hire a lawyer, then then you can probably buy a custom tailored form from, from various sources online. And at least it'll be specialized to whatever state yeah, or,
1: or city. At Bigger Pockets, we actually just launched uh, a bunch of like state-specific legal forms. We went and partnered with a lawyer in—I don't know if partners—but worked with a lawyer in every one of the states. I think we're at like thirty-four right now, and, and talked with that lawyer and said, "Hey, like." Can you review this? Can you make it state specific, make it look good as a way for our members who don't want to go to an attorney, who want to save some money. They can buy legal forms directly from bigger pockets. So it's kind of a new feature. Just FYI, everyone, uh, I think it's at biggerpocketscom pockets.com slash LL forms like landlord LL forms. But uh, so, so the, the legal thing, like it's important, it is important, but it's also super intimidating. Like David said, like, Yeah. I don't even know where to start. Most of the time when I was starting with real estate, I was like, well, I'm broke. I'm poor. I can't go to a lawyer. That's going to charge me tens of thousands of dollars. Kill, can you give us like a couple, like if you, if I were to book out an hour of your time or two hours of your time, like, and I'm just getting started with real estate, I'm just about to buy my first property. We'll say, we'll go at the very beginning. What do I ask you? I mean, am I I going, Hey, can you, you know, give me a lease? Is that all I'm asking you or what else? What are you going to help me in that hour of time to do?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, and look, if if you came into my office, I'd be billing it. I don't, depending on what the matter is somewhere between 250 and 300 bucks an hour. And, you know, compare that to what you're going to spend at the title company on fees or brokerage fees or whatnot. It's not, if you have real questions, it's not, you know, really all that much money to sit down and you can extract a lot of info in an hour. But yeah, you, you know, if someone came in my office and they said, Hey, I'm a new investor, what should I do? I would I would help them in terms of uh, structuring contracts when they're making offers and making sure they've got the right contingencies. You know, in, in Illinois, for example, there's an attorney review on on most residential form contracts. So you sign you sign an offer to buy something. If you know that there's an attorney review provision in there, where once the seller accepts the contract, you've got call it five or seven business days for the lawyer to make modifications. Then you can offer with confidence, and when there is a deal, you can start investing money into the deal at that point. And whether it be on the contract or preparing a lease or helping you research, you know, not everyone is experts at, at analyzing recorders' websites or, you know, the assessors' websites to determine what the taxable history is or how the taxes on the property will change, you know, in order or to help underwriting. You know, a lot of the lawyers, once you do have a contract or, or once you do have a tenant you're looking for, the uh, lawyers can help guide you through that process.
3: So that, that's so valuable, what you just said right there. For, for people that may not understand the legal jargon, what you're saying is that you can go put a property under contract and have a contingency to back out based on the fact that your lawyer looked at this and didn't agree with the way that the contract was written or the condition of the property. That's so valuable for people that come across a deal and they want to buy it, but they just don't know what they don't know and they're afraid to, to pull that trigger. You go write your offer, you put it under contract, then they call you or another lawyer and say, hey, I need you to look at this. Am I missing anything, right? Find the yes. holes in this. And if the guy's saying, no, it's good to go, or the gal says it's good to go, you go back to and show your agent, yep, let's stay in this thing and let's move forward. Brandon and I talk about that all the time is newer investors think that you you take down a property with one swing of an ax, right? You better be sure before you swing that thing, you're getting into it. When in reality, it's like, 30 40 50 very small steps that you take and you don't take this one until you've already taken this one right the the due diligence process does not have to be done all at one time it's a process as you move through and understanding the contract kind of is another tool in your tool belt it lets me know i can go this far and i can still get out of this thing if i don't like it so now i know i need to look at the next step and i just love that you've dedicated yourself to understanding real estate to, to being a lawyer to working in title services to being an investor to managing a fund all these things you're doing you know what you can and can't get away with and how to navigate in this world. And that's why you have so much confidence. And I just want to stress to people that if you're feeling fear, you're feeling anxiety, it's probably a result of your own lack of education and knowledge, right? If you can gather more information and learn more about what you're doing, you will feel more confident. You'll put yourself in the arena more often. and You get more victory. So, I mean, I just, I listening to you talk, it just inspires me that, man, I want to go learn as much as I can. I want to have a a tool belt that's just incredibly big, like Inspector Gadget, you know, running around with a tool for every situation that you could find.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love Brandon, that do you
3: have anything you want to add before we go to the fire round?
1: Nah, just that like, you know, I want to just encourage people like one of the mistakes I made early on was not going to a lawyer more often. You know, like I, I what I found is that lawyers are good for I mean, obviously a lot of things. What I didn't realize that they were good for was like knowing the right questions to ask. So like recently I sat down with a lawyer when we bought our um, mobile home park out on in Maine, in Bangor, Maine. Uh, and I sat down, uh, Ryan Murdoch, who's one of my partners on the deal, and Mindy and Carl Jensen, who are the other ones, and lawyer and us, sat down in this room. Well, Mindy and Carl were on a phone. And like the lawyer just asked us questions and after question, after question, after question, especially about partnerships, which I mean, technically it's not a partnership, but it's a tick. But anyway, because like we didn't even know the right question. To ask, okay, he's asking, like, well, what are you gonna do if one party does this? Oh, I don't know, I never even thought to ask that question. Or, what are you gonna do if this comes up? I don't know, I never thought about that. So, like, that hour we spent with that attorney will save us tens of thousands of dollars potentially, hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially down the road. So, again, my advice to people would just be like, don't be afraid of a lawyer, you know, but just go in there, you know, asking the right questions or or asking the attorney, what are the right questions to ask? Anything you want to add to that, Rob?
2: Yeah. Yeah. As David was saying, a lot of times you don't have to do anything until until you have a contract that's accepted because you're going to have certain due diligence, you know, clauses in the contract inspection, attorney review, title review, whatever it is. You know, like I was saying in the beginning of the show, you know we'd come, I'd come in on Sundays with my partner. We'd make a hundred offers sometimes in a day, and I hadn't looked at any of the properties. Now that's I, I did research the heck out of them on the front end. So I knew that I liked everything on paper, but I hadn't actually viewed the properties because it was crazy labor intensive. There's no way I could have done it. And you know, I knew what the investment parameters were, but I hadn't actually inspected them. okay? So fast forward a week or two after negotiating and going back and forth on counter offers finally getting an accepted contract from a seller. And I'm saying, okay, cool. They, they accepted the deal. Now I've got five business days to go out and inspect these properties. So I'd go tour with my partner and my contractor, and then we'd figure it out. And sometimes we'd, we go back to the seller and say, listen, I, I didn't know that the furnace doesn't work. There's no way I could have known it. Cause I didn't bring my furnace guy in there before the contract was signed. Now I need another $5,000 to fix this furnace. And most of the time, they tell you to pound sand, but sometimes you get fifteen hundred bucks or two grand, and you may have already had um, you know some funds set aside to or built into the deal for that purpose. So you don't always have to know everything uh, before you actually get the deal. and and there there is actually time to research it. And sometimes if it doesn't pan out, and you find something you don't like and the seller won't work with you. Or if you want to cancel the deal, then you cancel it. You know, there's no, you don't have to bet hundred percent on your offers either. So like I said, if it was a one in 10, I got an accepted contract. There are probably 20% of those deals that I also canceled too. So it is a numbers game And each deal that you cancel. It's, you're gonna have learned something. You canceled because you figured out, you know, there's, there's something wrong. There was one condo I was trying to buy one time. And it was it was a bank-owned property. I went in there with my inspector. It was a killer deal. I did, it was forty or fifty thousand dollars on Cicero Avenue in Chicago, or sorry, it was in Skokie, Illinois, just outside Chicago. And the the property was rehabbed. It was foreclosed. The lender was selling it. And when we went in there, you wouldn't believe this. The electrical outlets were screwed into the wall, that, and there was no there was no electrical behind the outlet. The plumbing plumbing fixtures looked like they were there and I went and turned the sink on as if there was a regular pedestal sink and you'd open up the cabinet below and there was no plumbing fixtures in there. So it's like, (laughs) this is a total fraud and the bank that's selling it has never been there. They don't know. And it was like the craziest thing ever, but whatever. I was justified in canceling the contract. What am I gonna do? I'm not doing an entire build out and, and putting in electrical and plumbing. I'm a $40,000 condo, which is, you know, sorry, next up, you know, and I, I don't know what happened to that unit, but. You know, I wasn't prepared to do that much work. So
3: I've I've heard of stage furniture in a listing before. I've never heard of stage plumbing and stage electrical. <laughs>
4: yeah.
3: Like that was that's that's hilarious. It's like you know, the Barbie Dream Home or something. They just yeah. bought it like a sink and plugged it in.
2: <laughs> don't that live was- there. You just you're gonna go hang out on the couch and look around. Don't live there though. Yeah. yeah there one go. thing you one
3: thing you mentioned is you you don't have to get a hit on every at bat, and you're a hundred percent right. But what I've found is that the more at bats you get the smarter you get just from getting up there, right? You're seeing pitches, you're getting to know that pitcher, you're figuring them out. You may not be getting a hit, but you're getting closer to a hit with every at bat and you're learning something, right? Because I buy houses sight unseen all the time. I buy houses in different parts of the country and everyone wants to know how I feel comfortable doing that. And the answer is just what we're saying is I'm not just committing completely the minute I write that contract to buy the house. That's a step in the direction of a purchase. Now I have a, a time frame that I've negotiated in that contract to go get an inspector to go. I don't need to go look at that house to make sure that the sink is actually plugged into plumbing. I need my house inspector to go do that and read his report because he's gonna find that much better than I would anyways, right? That sixplex that, that you mentioned that you bought, you had to dig out the uh, gas tank, I believe there's a lot of people that hear that and say, oh, I could never buy that. I, what if I didn't catch it? Well, your inspection would have caught that if you paid for one. So can you tell us a little bit about the last question before we the fire round? What's your future look like right now in real estate? You mentioned that you bought a sixplex. Are you focusing on multifamily? Are you waiting for a market correction? Like what's Rob doing now?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking at deals, anything that, that makes sense. I would, I would love to have another programmatic strategy like I did with the condos from like Oh nine to 2015. And and buy them or, or have some sort of strategy, you know, in any asset as class where I can sort of master one little niche and, and exploit it and, and build a system for it. It was one of those things where it's, you know, if I had to go back and look at it again and and I didn't have any hiccups or learning curves, I, I would have bought 3000 condos, but that's, you know, that's the equivalent of back to the future 2, where Biff gets the sports almanac, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just, it's learn as you go type thing. I, I, I want to, you know, find new deals that make sense, but I'm not rushing into them. I'm, I'm still making a lot of offers and I'm, I'm not getting many, but you know, I'm hanging in there and I'm still trying to, you know, get a lot of at-bats. So, you know, the other thing in terms of, of learning, it's not only when you're offering too. the learning curve is there on the property manager side, you know, for as long as you're a property manager and as much experience you have, you're always going to learn some sort of you know, some sort of angle or, or, or a way to make your, you know, managing your properties better. We I happen to self-manage because I, I think it's nice. I want to control the cash register. I want to know what's coming in and coming out. And I, I'm sort of of the opinion that no one watches your money like you do, but there is something to be said about also having a huge scale of thousands of properties and having someone else manage it. And then you manage the manager. I'm just, I'm not quite there. And, you know, um, you know, I don't have uh, institutional type capital where I want to do that, but You know in terms of the management i had uh uh, my cousin called me about a month ago and say hey listen i you know i I was just at her wedding she she got married and said hey my my husband and i we we need to get out of the apartment we're in we we hate it Uh, i'm ready to move can you help me get out of my lease and i'm thinking okay great i hate representing tenants i just you know it's like kind of goes against what i do as a landlord however i said send me your lease i'll take a look so she's she's paying you know in the city of chicago and there is, the landlord filed absolutely none of the of the landlord tenant laws. So I'm looking at it saying, okay, if you wanna see your landlord, you've got the right to get about three times the security deposit plus my attorney fees. So I'm like, okay, it's 15 grand plus attorney fees. It's totally harsh and outrageous. The woman who owned her her condominium that she was renting had owned it for like 20 some years. She'd never had a problem before and obviously didn't know about any of the laws because it was in, you know an old town in a nicer area of the city. But she still didn't know that, you you know, you've got to follow these these security deposit rules. So, you know, after a couple of conversations with her and her attorney, you know, they realized, okay, it's time to let them out of the lease. The tenant walks. They've got to do turnover. they got to find a new tenant. And and it was it was a big learning lesson for them. I didn't um, you know, my my cousin, thank God, didn't want to sue them for that money. All she wanted to do was move and she didn't want to exploit or take advantage of them. But. You know, there's a ton of lawyers out there in that also have to make a living and, and they view it as being, hey, it's the law, I'm gonna enforce it. And the judges have no choice, they enforce it too. So, you know, we could have rolled into court and gotten a $15,000 judgment against this woman who who's, you know, maybe invested 100 or 150 grand into her condo. So it's like, that's a catastrophic event. If, if you're a first time landlord and, and or a newer landlord or an uninformed landlord, you don't know about stuff like that. I mean, you can cruise by for a long time, but at some point in time, you can, you know, you can't always dodge every bullet. Um, so this, this woman hopefully was, you know, became informed and and, and won't make that mistake again. But it was, uh, you know, wild situation. And, and unfortunately, I think there's probably a lot of municipalities in, in, in major like metropolitan areas in the, in the country where you've got, you know, rent control and things like that that exists. So it's, you know, yeah. kind of a harsh story, but good to realize why you can alleviate all that on the front end yeah
1: so to kind of kind of sum up like I, I think kind of what you're saying like you there are there are very severe laws I mean in every state even tenant friendly states I mean in a landlord friendly states there's laws everywhere that govern what we do this is not the wild west like there are like in most areas it's governed pretty well so if you're not willing to go and learn. Exactly what your landlord-tenant laws are like, then you need to either hire a lawyer and have them com- consult with everything, or hire a good property manager who can take that. But don't just wing it. Like this isn't a, a wing it kind of a of a game. Would
2: you agree? You could do it for maybe a short period of time, but to to think that you're going to build a sustainable business without yeah. having the correct lease and lease forms and tenant forms is like beyond reckless.
1: Yep. Yeah, totally agree. Well, uh, super, super cool. So, now before we get out of here, we're going to head over to the next segment of our show, which we lovingly refer to as our Fire Round. Fire Round. It's time for the Fire Round.
4: Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for
0: better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. And listeners of the show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/biggerpockets. Just go to indeed.com/biggerpockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com/biggerpockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's reNTredi.com and use the code BPINVESTOR. That's BP, like bigger pockets, INVESTOR to get six months of rent ready for $1. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day Download the Redfin app to get started today. All right, let's get to the fire
1: on. Now, these questions come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums, and we're going to fire them at you, Rob. You ready for this? Can you handle okay. it? I'm ready. Right. <laughs> let's hear it. Number one, uh, appliances. What exactly is a landlord's responsibility to repair or replace? Now, specifically, I'm going to add a little bit. It's a. It was a long question, so I'll summarize. Basically, this woman owns a duplex, and for one of the units, when the tenants moved in, she supplied a washer and dryer. Ah, uh, but this because it was there when she bought the property. Well, now the washer or dryer broke. can does she have to fix the washer and dryer? Or was it's not anywhere in the lease. So what does she do? Can she just say, "Hey, sorry. Well, now you got to go get your own or does she have to supply a new one now because it was there when the tenants moved in? What do you think?
2: yeah, so it's it's it depends what the lease says. if the If the lease says it doesn't include a washer and dryer and one happens to be there, then there's an argument that you don't have to fix it. but the the most common uh, circumstance you'll see this in is, like window air conditioned units. You can say property comes with no air conditioned unit. If there happens to be one there, I'm not liable for it. However, if it's unclear in the lease and it doesn't specifically state um, that the the tenant's liable for it, then it's gonna fall on the landlord to fix and or replace it.
1: All right, good answer.
3: All right. Okay, the next question is about going from a year contract to a month-to-month lease. So this forum guest says they have good tenants whose lease is up for renewal soon and the tenants want a month-to-month situation. The landlord's instinct uh, is to say, no, they want to insist on a full year renewal, even if it means losing them as tenants. They don't like the idea of going to month to month lease because the tenants can leave during a time when it would be hard to put a new tenant in the property. What are your thoughts on this? Do you have any experiences going through something like this and how would you advise someone to handle it?
2: Sure. So there's a couple of factors that go into it. Most important in Chicago is seasonal. Leases that expire in December, January or February will have the longest vacancy period. So if someone says in the middle of December, hey, I need one more a month and my lease is up 1231, I need till 131, yes, no problem. In the middle of the summer, spring, fall, when the lease up period's good, I customarily will not do it unless there's some special circumstance. And if the tenant wants the flexibility to have a you know a termination or termination option within like a short horizon, they need to pay a temporary rent bump. You know if there's a good reason hey i'm i think i'm moving i'm waiting for a job i I'm, I'm not going to renew a one-year lease then you can say great you know you have a seven and a half percent rent bump while you're month to month that way you get some compensation for the lack of stability the other thing you can do is you can build into your lease agreement that says you know sometimes illinois law provides it if the tenant is able to find or at least chicago law if the tenant's able to find a suitable sublessor then you've got no choice but suitable means you, okay you run credit you, you they've got good enough income they can sustain the rent payment they don't have a criminal history things like that you know usually the tenants won't go through all the steps to do that so but that's an option uh the other option is a buyout i've gotten all our leases if you want to terminate mid lease, is three months up front and, and you, you pay it um, you prepay three months rent and then i terminate it and it sounds like it's a windfall to the landlord, but when you think about it, it's, it's not entirely because you're gonna have some turnover costs, minor paint, minor fix up. If you've got to have a realtor um, relet your place, you're gonna usually pay a half a month or a month commission. And then you've got your you're sort of specking the risk for whatever vacancy might exist. So I think it does compensate you adequately in like an efficient market. But if you're in a time period when, you know, the economy's bad or you can't rent really quickly, you know, you may want to reconsider that. But from my experience in Chicago, the three-month lease file has been pretty good.
1: All right. I like that actually a lot. I think that's cool. Sort of uh, compromise there. All right, next one. I purchased my first rental property at the end of December. It was a foreclosure and I purchased it from the bank with cash. Now, after the closing, I received a credit for the sanitation bill. But now two months later, I'm receiving a water and sewer bill that starts from way back in October. How did that happen? I had a realtor, I had a lawyer, I had a title company, now what do I do? Who's responsible for that?
2: Call the lawyer. I mean, they, your contract said they're supposed to have uh, real estate tax prorations. The uh, the lawyers in charge of of seeing that uh, you that all the conditions of the contract were performed at the closing. Unfortunately, a lot of contracts have a clause, a merger clause, which says once the deed is received, that all the all the pre-closing conditions have deemed to have been agreed upon and satisfied. So, you know, while you can. There's a possibility that you'll get a seller that is cooperative in a, a bank-owned Oreo situation. You know, I think your probably your requests will probably fall on deaf ears. So, if I was in that person's shoes, I'd call the lawyer and say, you know, hey, here's my bill. Why didn't I get the proration? And maybe the lawyer's not going to write you a check to cover you know whatever the loss was, but maybe you can work out a deal. Hey, on the next next time I have some sort of legal work, you'll give me this much credit off my bill, or you know, something along those lines. That's a great idea. Yeah. It's very good. But also it's, you know, kind of, you got to get the big picture too, unless it's an astronomical bill, it's, you know, you bought a foreclosure, there's going to be some, there's going to be some expenses and, you know, it sounds like the big picture, everything was good. And you know, you have one little issue, so you got to kind of, there's always going to be little hiccups in the deals. You got to keep them forward too. That, that is fantastic
1: advice. Yeah. There's always things that are going to go wrong. Like people are always, I don't want to invest in real estate because something might go wrong. Well, yeah, something will go wrong. Like, you know, you yeah, you deal with it. I
2: mean, hey, look, it, it works, it cuts both ways. Sometimes you do a closing and the the seller says, Hey, uh, this tenant has not been paying. So you say, Okay, no problem. I'll I'll assume the risk, I'll evict the tenant. And I mean, hopefully you're getting the right price on the building where it's worthwhile to assume, you know, the task of dealing with that. But you know, I've had times where the tenant comes into our office, you know. Two three weeks later, and says, "Oh, here's my five grand back rent. I just got my tax return, and I sorry I couldn't pay it." So, yeah. you know, there's situations when you come up to, you know, it yep. works both ways. Yeah, nobody complains go. when that yeah. happens. Yeah, you don't, you, know, exactly hear those,
3: you don't hear those stories. Real <laughs> estate got, is horrible. I got more money than I expected to get. This is ridiculous. <laughs> right. I don't know <laughs> right. what's gonna happen. Yeah, right. we t- we definitely tend to focus on negative, and that becomes an excuse not to go. And when the positives happen, we just assume it should have happened that way. So that's a sure. really good point. It does cut both ways, and training yourself to recognize that is a good way to kind of keep your own confidence levels high. All right, Rob. Last question. I- I'm asking for a friend. What is the best way to invest five hundred thousand dollars? Good friend of mine owns two units for the past fifteen years. The stock market is leveling out and will not be as exciting as last year, so he's looking for a new way. What do you think or recommend would bring the safest ROI?
2: I guess it, it, it's sort of a sort of a loaded question. It depends where you're at. You know, it's different in different uh, areas of the country and, and what you're used to. If if you're not a seasoned you know real estate professional and you're not going to do all the research study the data like we talked about throughout the show and really you know immerse yourself and and have some other sort of real estate expertise and stay involved and active with it then then you should you should invest in a passive fund you know you can find uh reits or institutional funds that will take your money and and, and have good track records and, and give you a, give you a good return whether it's you know you're you're investing in a limited partnership interest or you know publicly traded reit it's it's sort of whatever your flavor is but half a million dollars, you can do some damage. I mean, that can be a down payment on on, uh, on a pretty big building. So, you know, if you want to if you want to manage it yourself and, and jump into the arena, five hundred thousand is a lot to play with. So, uh, study the data and and make ten offers and hope you get one. Right there, you go. What do you think?
3: What do you think about the investment strategy of watching Billions on HBO and copying whatever Bobby Axelrod does?
2: Yeah, he's he's good. It was a a big learning curve switching from Homeland to Billions, but he's pretty good. I think he he bought up all the bonds in the one city and then then foreclosed all the real estate and basically took down the government. I mean, it's totally wild.
3: I, I was watching an episode last night and there's some tsunami that came because of an earthquake and they're like the person running the fund was expected to have seen that coming and known <laughs> what to do. It's
4: yeah. Pretty, it's, a good it's
2: interesting though. I mean there's there's people in, in Chicago that sort of play that strategy that hey, I've got enough money, I'm gonna buy the market. You know, there's there's a couple of landlords that own, you know, thousands of units and they say, Hey, I can't really get the return. I don't see the yield anywhere else. I've got this big you know, platform built already. If I add another 500 units to it, it's no big deal. And there's nowhere else I know that I've got a patient enough, long-term enough expert strategy where I'm going to clip 5% a year or 5.5% a year. So they'll buy deals that you know the general market considers to be overpriced. But if it's in the location where they already manage other property and getting more scale does good for them, then it you know, each deal, like, like I said, each deal kind of is different for each investor. And some deals make sense for some people and they don't make sense for other people. So at the end of the day, you got to know why you're comfortable buying whatever asset you're going to buy. And you have to have sort of a strategy and stick with it.
3: Yeah. I love yeah, that. So today's quick tip, don't bother learning real estate. When Bitcoin lets you down, just copy what they do in the show billions
1: and you can. Make <laughs> yeah.
2: <it. laughs> don't work for Bobby Axelrod.
1: Yeah. There you go. All right. Moving on to the last segment of the show, which we lovingly refer to as our famous four. Fire. Ooh. Yeah, way to go. Way to screw that one up, DG. I did. But before we get to today's famous four, let's hear a quick word from Mindy on what's going on this week over on the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Thanks, Brandon. On this week's episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, we chat with Alan Donegan. Alan watched and helped his father run a super successful sportswear company until the economy shifted and they lost everything. Determined not to follow this path, Alan got a job. Then another, and another, and another. He couldn't find anything he wanted to do, so he created his own job, teaching people how to create theirs. Taking lessons from his father's experiences, Alan teaches entrepreneurs how to start really small and test the idea before jumping in with both feet. If you have an entrepreneurial itch, this is a can't miss episode. Okay, and now
0: for the famous four.
1: Famous four. All right, so let's get to the famous four. These are the same four questions we ask every guest every single week, and uh, we're gonna throw them at you, Rob. So, number one, do you have a favorite real estate, specifically real estate related book?
2: Yeah. So i, I liked uh, I liked Rich Dad Poor Dad a lot, and then the, I think a follow up book was like the Cash Flow Quadrant, yep. and I don't. I guess it's not like deals specific to real estate, and it sort of doesn't analyze all the real estate deals. and Not totally real estate focused, but I thought it was it was really helpful for me because it, it helped analyze the tax perspective of being a business owner versus self employed versus an employee. And at some point in time, I think that you know, in, in everyone's career, if you can get to the, the self employed or the business owner phase the tax consequences or the tax benefits are, are insane, right? You've got, you can run a lot of your life through your business because you have, you know, you're using your car for business, you're using your phone for business. If you, you know, if you work at a company, you may have a phone or have a car, but if you don't, you're buying all that stuff with post-tax dollars. So I thought that was, that was a pretty cool takeaway and kind of showed me, you know, the way real estate can help you get there.
3: Very nice. You wear many business hats, Rob. What is your favorite business book?
2: There's a book called it's a it's a I like I like kind of true stories and biographies. So there's a there's a book that I read that kind of had a good impression. It's called it was a biography on Jesse Livermore. I think it was called the Greatest Trader Who Ever Lived. And you know it's not it's not exactly related to real estate. Well, I guess not at all. But it was about a. Um, you know, a guy from the Great Depression area, you know, he started off as like a little kid working in trading shops and became, you know, the the biggest short seller ever. He was the guy that was short the market when the Great Depression stock market plunge happened and, you know, became like one of the richest guys in the US. And he was just someone who who had very little formal education and, you know, became immersed in his market, figured out his skill and and exploited it as best as he could and sort of, you know, found out ways to, to make value as a trader. I thought it was it was pretty cool to show someone who, um, you know, came full circle from walking in the door as like, you know, the 10 or 12 year old kid, you know, sweeping the floors to becoming the guy who, uh, I guess there were no jets in the 1930s, but maybe limousines or whatever he had.
3: (laughs) He had the the nicest horse-drawn carriage. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Killer (laughs) killer Clydesdales pulling them around.
3: (laughs) I always love those stories, you know, the the rags to riches. And I wonder who the next listener of the bigger pockets podcast is going to be that like, you know, what they're hearing, just it scratches that itch that they need to scratch. And then they become, you know, very, very wealthy and and going to be really successful because it could come from anywhere and it's so when it does. Can you tell us a couple of your hobbies? What do you, what do you like to do when you're not representing people and, and evicting people and all the fun stuff you're doing in real estate?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I play a lot of golf in Chicago. You get like five months a year. So I try to do that as much as possible. Early Wait, a, lawyer,
1: a lawyer playing golf. Come on. Really?
2: Yeah. That, that happened? Hey, <laughs> it's good though for, you know, for, uh, for real estate, a lot of times you get involved with deals. You want, you want to have partners or you need to have partners. Yep. So someone has the deal, someone has the money, or you both, you know, have a reason why you need to be partners. Golfing is pretty good. It gets, you get four or five hours to hang out with someone, you know, you can kind of judge character, analyze if it's someone you want to be partners with. Once you get into a deal, you're going to be in usually for years. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, picking, picking a good partner. You get to vet them out pretty good. And you you know, it's better than going to 10 dinners with someone. So
3: I totally I was. In, I did not. When yeah. I was in Hawaii, Brandon was like, David, when are you going <laughs> to learn how to golf? <laughs> like, I, like, I'd never want to learn how to golf. It looks so boring. And he's like, "No, you need to learn how to golf if you want to be a good business person. Your your yeah. game will step up huge." And like every good business person says, what you just said. It's like I can't get someone to come in for four hours and interview them, but I can go hang out and play golf with them when they don't know they're being interviewed and find out everything I would ever need to know. So yeah,
2: yeah. get a few beers in them, and you get a lot of think A lot of disclosure <laughs> yeah, comes out <laughs> that
1: you do. All right, so. what what do you believe? So my my last question on the famous four. What do you believe? sets apart successful real estate investors from all those who give up or they fail or they never get started?
2: Yeah. I think it's patience. You know, you, you can't exactly time what you're getting into when, you know, when you wake up and say, okay, today's the day I'm going to go look at a property or buy a property, you know, at that point in time, you probably know nothing about where the market was, where it is today and, and kind of where it's trending towards. So, you, you know, you got, obviously you have to get your feet wet and there is risk involved and, you know, you do need to take risk when you, when you buy that first property or, but, you know, you also don't have to rush into it. You can be patient and and figure out when is the correct timing. So just cause you woke up and said, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to buy today. You don't have to actually buy today. You just need to start, you know, start your process today and carry on your process until you do actually buy. Very nice. Rob, where can we find out more about you? Jeez. We, to, to be honest with you, I'm I'm sort of embarrassed by it. I don't even operate. We don't have a website. We don't, you know, a public website. So it's, you know, my, I think my email information's on uh, with Mindy on, on the show. But apart from that, I'm not, you know, we're not incredibly public with all our information. Are you,
1: t- are you taking more clients If people in Chicago area want to use you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're yeah. interested in clients. It's what's uh, your, uh, what, yeah, what's our your website. Our website, our, our law firm is called BOLU Law Offices. It's uh, BOLU, B as in boy, E-A-U-L-I-E-U. Um, um, and you can find us at uh, B E A U legal.com And um, you know, our information and attorney profiles are on there. So if you want to you know, reach out or whatever, I'd be uh, happy to discuss anything you've got on your mind.
1: Perfect. And we will link to that at the show, on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show275. So Rob, thank you so much. it Has been awesome, uh, super informational. I love hearing your story. I just think it's crazy you went from you know zero to three hundred condos, just like eh, you know we just did it. Not a big deal. So I think that's awesome. So thank you for telling us your story today.
2: Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, guys.
1: All right, thanks. See you around. Okay, have a good one. All right, and that was our show with Rob Oliver, attorney at large. Is that what they call him? <laughs> I don't know. That's what you attorney call at him. law, attorney think. at law, not large.
3: <laughs> <laughs> attorney at large would be the kind of guy I would have been arresting in my previous affairs. <laughs> that's funny. attorney, attorney at large.
1: At large. <laughs> Oh man, we should re-record that, but we're not going to, uh, that's funny. <laughs> anyway, super cool show and super important lesson. Like, you know, like, like I said in the show, like, this is not like a flippant, like just go and buy some real estate. Like there are, there are legal consequences to what we're doing here, which is why most people will never get into it. So, you know, get the right advice, get the right attorney, Go out there and make some deals happen.
3: Yep. And try to find an attorney that invests themselves. That's so cool, right? Like I'd trust whatever Rob told me because he's got 300 condos. He's done this himself. So when you're looking for an agent, when you're looking for a property manager, when you're looking for a contractor, all the pieces you're going to need, a lawyer, find one that same perspective we are. And it'll be the advice that they're giving you will be much more tailored to to kind of what you're doing.
1: There you go. Rock solid, rock solid. Well, hey, I know you like analogies, David. So I'm going to give you an analogy. So I was watching, uh, my wife and I are rewatching Lost right now. You know, the show Lost, Right Oh so, yeah, you
3: guys tried yeah. to suck me into watching that, and I Oh, that's
1: right. you have, okay, so you haven't seen Lost yet? You got to get
3: there. No, I don't. I don't do drugs, and I'm afraid <laughs> to get into it. <laughs>
1: All right, so we're re-watching Lost, probably because I talked to you about it, and I was like re sparked to watch it. So anyway, we're watching from the beginning, and there's an analogy that Mr. John Locke, who doesn't mean anything to you, but he's shaven head like you, and uh, John Locke gives us a great analogy. He's he points out this butter like a moth. There's like a moth in a cocoon, and he points it out, and he goes over to it, and he says. You know, this right now, this moth is inside here. You know, this caterpillar or whatever it was. You know, I don't know what a moth pre a pre moth is, but whatever that is, <laughs> uh, a, there's a pre moth inside this cocoon. Right. And he's struggling and fighting right now to get free of this cocoon. And he's and he's tearing at the stuff and it's going to take him a few days to get through it. And by the time he does, he'll rip open that thing and he'll fly out. Now, I could and He's got, he's got this big, huge hunting knife in his hand. He's like, I could go over here and just very carefully create a little line here and free the moth from his cocoon and he'll he'll not have to struggle at all he'll just come out but if i do that he'll die he won't be able to survive because the cocoon is what gives him his strength the struggle is what gives him his strength anyway so i was watching that and i was like That is such a good analogy for just life, right? Like this is hard sometimes, real estate investing or just like, you know, like trying to build any kind of business entrepreneurial thing. But that's what gives us strength later on in life. So I thought you'd appreciate that little analogy for a non-lost fan.
3: It's like, that's my favorite analogy, I think in the whole world. I usually say it with a (laughs) a little baby chicken trying to get out of the egg. Very same thing. But yeah, like uh, when you're feeling pain, when you're feeling struggle, know that that's for a purpose because it's making you stronger to accomplish your goal. It doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing because it's hard. Too many people quit because it didn't come easy and they think that's a sign that they're not supposed to be doing it. I'd say the opposite. If it's coming easy, then there's nothing for you to gain there. The struggle is, you know, what is what the goal is because that's what's going to make you stronger. That is I'm very impressed. I don't think I've ever been as proud of someone as Brandon finally embracing an analogy. (laughs) I feel like my little boy
1: just took his first step. I love analogies. I I just make fun of you for being like the king of analogies. You're, you're the, you're the best person I've ever known at analogies. Like you just come up with an analogy off the top of your head. Like right now, give me an analogy, go.
3: Okay. (laughs) You telling me that I'm the best person you've ever known at giving analogies is like Tiger Woods saying that's the best putter that I've ever met, right? Like you're very good at it yourself. So that's a huge compliment coming from you. Okay. Well, that was a good analogy, very well, uh, right off the cuff. All
1: right. Thank you guys for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoy it. And, and uh, if you have not yet left us a rating or review in iTunes, please do so. We'll give you a nice big bear hug next time we hang out. So with that, let's get out of here. DG, anything you want to end the show with?
3: No, sir. This is David Green for Brandon, investor at large Turner, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors, large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from
0: BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the BiggerPockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units.